0: As President and CEO of Swiss Farm, Scott directs overall operational services and drives revenue through exceptional customer service, company culture, and strategic planning and management. Scott most recently served as Chief Operating Officer at Heavenly Bowl and has an MBA from Bradley University. Scott Simon, welcome into the corner office. Thank you very much. How wonderful to have you here today! Well, as you know, with this podcast series, we uh, get to uh, know the the uh, CEOs and their and their journey into the corner office, and we like to kind of start with the early years. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and you know what your family life was like.
1: Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, and I had two older sisters. And I'd been in retail most of my early careers in high school. Uh, I always worked, and um, so How old I grew. Were you up, when
0: you started in retail, Scott.
1: Oh, I, I think my first job was uh, probably like eleven or twelve. I had a newspaper route, and um, I had forty-two papers. Um, it was seven days a week, and on Sundays you had to wake up at five in the morning
0: to deliver <laughs> that really heavy paper. Was this the kind where you'd go door to door and have to collect the money at the end of the month? You as did, well? and that—that
1: and that it's that in itself was a huge learning curve because. <laughs> I had one guy that, you know, wouldn't pay me and I actually had to get my mom to help me. Um, But yeah, it was a great learning curve. And and even today, you still use those uh, resources to help you.
0: You know, it's so funny. So many of our CEOs, male CEOs, and I might mention females as well, were either having their own um, paper roots or, you know, other types of things at a very early age. One female CEO actually got paid a penny a piece to fold the papers for her older brother.
1: Yeah, that was probably a smarter person than I was. I actually had to get on my bike and deliver.
0: (laughs) Exactly. If I had a younger sister, I think I would have put her to work that way too. Uh, Tell us about your parents, uh, professionals, work from the home, a little bit about them.
1: So uh, my dad was an optometrist and uh, my mom helped him during their early years of his building his practice. And then she was a homemaker for, uh, you know, after she started transitioning, helping along his business. Um, the the saddest thing was, you know, years later after my dad had retired, and I had said, "Dad, you know, did did you like what you did?" And he said, "No," he said he hated what he did. And I thought that was so sad because, um, I've always been lucky enough to only do what I love to do. If you don't love what you do, um, if you love what you do, you never work. So that was that was really my philosophy. Just kind of growing up, I always wanted to do stuff I like to do, and making people happy was part of that.
0: You mentioned a couple of sisters, older, younger,
1: older sisters who, uh, actually thought they were my surrogate mom. So as a result,
0: (laughs) you beat me to the next question. (laughs) Yeah. Listen, there was
1: a lot of, uh, uh, majority rules and, and it didn't work very well with me.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's too funny.
1: But you know, listen, they were a good influence and they certainly cared about me. And the fact that, uh, uh, if I had any disconnect, I would just send my sisters after them. There
0: you go. Exactly. Because uh,
1: let's face it, they, they did have value.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And they they were looking out for their little brother. I love that. They they certainly did. Absolutely. Who were some of the other early influences in your life, Scott?
1: You know, I, I was pretty lucky. I, I had gone to camp my whole life. Uh, I always thought that it was because they really loved me, but I didn't realize I was just kind of high maintenance. So the day school was over. <laughs> until school started again, my mom had me gone. So you're talking, I went to the same camp. This uh, is summer camp, camp or camp after yeah, school? Oh, summer no, camp. this is summer camp. And so, you know, the camp counselors, and, and we grew up with them. And uh, I would say they were really big influences. You know, I'm older, I'm almost 60. So think about what was happening in 1968, Vietnam War. And so, you know, those were, were big influences on us.
0: Was that just for a week or two or the entire no, summer? No,
1: that was the whole summer. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm Great. talking from the day school was out. <laughs> school the, out. Yeah. I was gone. I, I, I thought it was because they loved me and realized. You had other plans did. over the summer. Yeah, um, but was, that was, in Ca-
0: was that in California? California actually, yeah.
1: uh, Big Bear. I went to for about uh, 10 years until the camp moved to Prescott, Arizona, but um, very fortunate, and you—you you have those stability. You have that—that that block and tackle of what camp sort of offers you in terms of working with a team and and being a part of stuff and and understanding you're not alone.
0: What were some of those lessons from camp counselors that uh, had the most impression on you? Uh,
1: you know, I'd say manage by example. I would say that um, they knew what it was like to be a camper, and they knew what it was like to be a counselor, and and then treating us like adults. Um, and you figure at 10 years old, you, you think you know it all. But if you're you, but if you treated with a little respect, it goes a long way. And I'd say that was, whether you're talking to a 10-year-old, you're talking to a 50-year-old, um, you should talk to people the same way. And you, sh- you shouldn't have two different voices when it comes to talking to people.
0: Yeah. Excellent. A little bit about school. Were you a good student, Scott?
1: No. Uh, the worst <laughs> of the worst. <laughs> so... Um, I am. I'm severely. Just so dyslexic. you know, there's no consistency
0: yeah. with regards to oh. CEOs on that. You know, we have people that it. are top of the mark, summa cum laude. Those at the middle of the road, and those that were always trailing behind the pack. There seems to be no magic. Uh, no,
1: no, no magic
0: I, uh, number there.
1: <laughs> I, I read an awful lot about leadership, and um, I was dyslexic, or I am dyslexic, and as a result, the way I process information is much, much different than than most people. And so, uh, for me. Um, the technology has really helped me to sort of uh, absorb so much more. Where I can, I can have things read to me, um, and and I have an MBA. I went back to Harvard, so um, you know the dyslexia was now an opportunity for success because. Uh, it's validated that nothing can get out of my way. There's really successful people that are dyslexic.
0: Extremely. In fact, believe it or not, we've had two or three dyslexic ADHDs, CEOs. That's me, yeah. And (laughs) uh, some that didn't even learn to read until college. We had one that told us about on his mission trip, um, he memorized the verses and actually got caught on it when he was going to -to door-to-door, holding the book upside down. And they said to him, you're not reading that, are you? And, uh, you know, and he's gone on to a Found a five hundred million dollar company. So
1: yeah, it it really has nothing to do. You know, it's just the way uh, we we process things. And now I use it to my advantage, um, and I feel uh, enabled. In fact, there's a great book by Maxwell Glidewell that talks about um, desirable dyslexia. I mean, desirable um, handicaps. And um, it, I don't know if you're familiar with the book at all, but. Um, David and Goliath. And oh, of course, he ta- yeah, I know God and, and he very talks, well. Yes. Yeah, and he talks uh-huh. a great deal about dyslexia and what a, an advantage we have.
0: That's right, that's right, it's a great book terrific author as well. In fact, interestingly, I had mentioned just before we came on that I had my iTunes open. I was looking at one of Gladwell's podcasts. So that's uh, indeed, uh, he's got, got some brilliant stuff. What about outside of class, Scott, sports, music, theater, anything else that kept you busy during those years?
1: So growing up, tennis was uh, in LA. You couldn't afford to play golf. And my dad used to say, I play golf to get away from you. <laughs> so, uh, tennis was a, a big thing that we could afford to do, and it was very local. I've kept with it. In fact, I, I play today. I ride my bike as I did back then. Um, I'm a big bike rider. And then, um, as far as you know, uh, other things, uh, cooking has always been in my in my world. I was a chef for about 15 years, and I started out in the Coast Guard as a cook, and then I went to chef school and became an executive. A chef and and work my way up through it. But uh, cooking has been a big part of my
0: life. And you mentioned entrepreneurial things like paper roots and working retail. Uh, anything else that went on while you were in middle school and high school?
1: Everything you can think of. So I would tell you, <laughs> you know, um, as a senior in high school, I was a janitor, um, you know, for the National Council of Jewish Women. And so from a perspective of having to do everything clean bathrooms, clean toilets, suite, mop. Um, nothing's not on my radar. And in camp, it's the same way. So the muscle memory of, of having uh, good processes and, and asking people to do things you would do yourself makes it an easier, as an, uh, it's an easier transition for a leader.
0: Now, were you encouraged by your parents to save some of that spending money? Was it hundred uh, percent discretionary, or were there some you know specific my, my hobbies mom, and habits?
1: Yeah. <laughs> a- absolutely, my mom was uh, excellent about making sure that I, I saved the money uh, for my paper out, so I couldn't spend a penny of it. Um, and so, I think that discipline and understanding how hard it is to make money and then reinvest it. So, you know, what do you get? Buying something is great, but buying something that might yield some profit and, and reinvesting that has always been part of what success looks like in our family.
0: Got it. Got it. So, so all the, all that money you saved over those years, did that go towards college or were there other investments that you made along the way prior to all that the above. big investment? So,
1: yeah. So, you know, um, uh, that was so long ago, as I said, I'm almost 60 and now my kids are, are 32 and. 28 but um definitely it was a discipline for a plan uh, college getting through it and you know as you grow up cars responsibilities all the things
0: it was that was your spending money and you had a car then that's how you financed it
1: listen uh when i grew up if you wanted it work for it yeah, you're not going right. to get it otherwise and it wasn't that they didn't have it to give it was um my dad said he had to work for it and you were going to work for it
0: yep no, so that, um, no, that work ethic yeah
1: and and by the way there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, it's what we instill upon. You know, it's funny when I interview, and I interview a lot of people. Um, one of the questions I ask them is, "Is anybody here in indentured service? Is anyone here <laughs> because they have to be here?" And and of course, everybody says no. And so as a result, the the common denominator is we're here for disposable income, money, and and so we we make sure we set those expectations out in the very beginning of the interview process.
0: Was it a foregone conclusion that you'd go to college since dad was a doctor?
1: No, no. In fact, I, I probably bailed out four or five times um, <laughs> before it actually stuck. And and I, I ended up getting well, this, my master's. dyslexia
0: probably was a challenge, right? Or, oh, at that stage. absolutely. Yeah, and there's no yeah.
1: computers, So today, I can talk into a computer. I can type it out. Everything can be read to me. Um, I mean, I've really mastered uh, the techniques and, and the strengths that, that the technology has afforded me. So now it's a level playing field. In fact, because of my retention, listening, um, and dyslexias all have different um, values, um, my comprehension for listening is pretty spectacular. So um, if I read it, forget about it. I'll never remember it. But <laughs> if I
0: hear it, I'm golden. What did you end up studying in college, Scott?
1: Um, I have a, a master's degree in leadership and business uh, through Bradley, and because of my uh, pursuit under, uh, through undergraduate, I didn't need an undergraduate degree to get my master's. Um, I, I had ten years experience in leadership. I was a director of hospitality and casinos, and and they and I'd done a lot of classes, but. Um, they, so they you just apply you
0: applied that straight to your master's, then you never actually achieved the bachelor, so to speak. No,
1: but I am going back to school. So, um, I'm starting all over again at community college. And my goal is to get a, a BA
0: degree sometime in the future. Well, that's a first, listen to that, our, 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 audience there. We've got a almost 60 CEO that's going back to get his bachelor's. How How cool is that? <laughs> and what's your motivation for that, Scott?
1: I want to be a lawyer. So I want to go to law school. I don't want to practice law, but because of this dyslexia, I was always told I couldn't do it. And I'm like, yeah, that's not true. So I want to, be, I want to go to law school.
0: Good for you. Terrific. And that will be something you'll apply uh, to your day-to-day job or something you'll do on the side or what do you Lawyers see? Lawyers uh,
1: are trained to think differently through the, um, the what is it, um, the Socratic method. Um, it's the way that they're trained to think and look. And, and um, I get kind of intimidated by attorneys. So I don't want to be intimidated anymore, which means I better be as smart as they are.
0: So let's go back to after your master's. What was that first job that you took full-time after you finished your education?
1: Well, I graduated in 2008 with my master's, so I went back to school 30 years later, and um, I had worked the whole time when I was going to school, so I was a a director of hospitality in a casino. I ran uh, probably 600 people, 12 different restaurants, 12 different bars. I had EVS. I had um, uh, ballet. I had, um, uh, it's called AV, and then I had banquets all under my umbrella, plus the gift shop.
0: So let's step back a little bit. What was the first time you started managing people then? what job was that?
1: You know, uh, um, I'd probably have to say as a chef. So um, in a kitchen, you got to get the work done. And and leaders aren't distinguished between name badge or hats or scarves or That's knives. Right. It's really about uh, we got to get the work out. So uh, for me, I, I'm not lazy, but I like to work smarter than harder. So uh, the end goal is to clean up and go home. So everything we do needs to be about Cleaning up and going home. So it's about working smarter. It's about working. Uh, it, it's about making sure there's a, an order to the way that you do things. So for me, and I think I'm understanding your question in leading people and and developing when you work in an interactive, it, it's really allowing uh, people to step up, encouraging them, and then ultimately finding that same level of camaraderie, that same um, common denominator of what we are looking for at the the end results. So for me, it was perfect, perfect products, very clean, very organized. And, and let's face it, I want to work smarter than harder. So I'm going to do white cake before I do chocolate cake. (laughs) So I don't have to wash my pans. There you go. And and that's about working smarter.
0: Now you had a lot of bosses and mentors over the years. Some good, probably some not so good. And we've, we're lessons from both. Give us some examples of some of the things that you got from some of the folks that managed you along the way.
1: Yeah, so uh, I was working at a private club. I was working two jobs. Uh, I was riding my bike, and my girlfriend's best friend's father ran a private club in Los Angeles. And so he invited me to quit both jobs and he took me as an apprentice and I got to work all the stations. I got to uh, work the bar. I got to understand saucier, broiling, And uh, Mr. Lachey, that was his name, he thought he was the dummy of the family. He only spoke uh, nine languages <laughs> where, he, where he said his parents spoke like 15. And uh, he was Hungarian and he told me, listen, the best thing you can do now is to keep your mouth shut, your eyes open and your ears open and always remember when you're in charge, how you would do it differently. And, and that really stuck with me. Um, and, and, and I, he also had a, he gave me this book and in it, he said, uh, patience is the mother of wisdom. And obviously at 22 or 24 years old, uh, that is not, <laughs> not going to <very> resonate. <laughs> right. But it, it really stands here. It is, you know, 30 years later, I, I still understand the importance of that quote. And it, it is, is absolutely true then as it is now. Patience is the mother of wisdoms. Awesome. And and so I think that that was a big
0: example for me of what success looks like. Any bad examples along the way?
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you don't need to mention names, Scott. No, no, not
1: at all. Um, You know, I I would tell you... uh, Um, I think the bad examples are as important as the good examples. Uh, And and it's how we learn from it. Um, It's easy to blame others. It's easy to throw, um, it's not my fault. But you know what? You got to take a serious look at uh, stuff sometimes. And you have to take some ownership. And even if I didn't value and and despise that person, uh, the takeaways were, that's not the guy I want to be. Although I understood the method and I understood uh, the process, I always decided I didn't want to be that guy that threw things across the room and screamed at people. Um, and, and I've had it done to me. I've had people be really rude. And I decided a success doesn't mean you have to be rude. So, um, you know, it's you get more bees with honey than you do vinegar.
0: How would you say your leadership style has evolved over the years?
1: Uh, well, I'll I'll tell you my first job when, when I walked in the kitchen at 11 o'clock at night and I'm thinking my first, I'm a manager, my first manager's job and, and the cooks are all waiting for tickets to come out, you know, for, to prepare the food and there were no tickets. And I said, okay, guys, you got to sit and clean. You can't sit here and wait for the tickets to come out. And they said, no, we're going to sit here and wait. And I said, no, you're not. And they said, yes, we are. (laughs) And as a result, they all walked out. So here's 11 o'clock at night and I got tickets coming out. Now they're all in the back smoking and they were waiting for me to come beg them. But I learned very quickly, uh, yeah, y- y- you can't do things with a big stick. Um, and so I, I think my-, my leadership is involved is to seek to understand before I diagnose. I, I think it- it's also situational. You can't white brush it. You have to look at situations and, and take them on a one-off. But I also think that you have to um, have a level of consistency and and discipline and and an approach to uh, how you evolve because I think leadership is something you you are you you, you learn you're not born with um, and um, I mean there are some great leaders uh, that have born into great leadership positions but those are few and far between so I think leadership is something you're
0: taught. Now you're currently CEO of Swiss Farms. Was that your first CEO job?
1: Yeah, I was a, uh, a chief operating officer for a chain of restaurants in California. Uh, and so this was the first time I was the president and CEO.
0: And tell me about the biggest change that you went through as you stepped into that corner office. Uh, buck stops with
1: you. You ain't got no one to blame but you. And uh, it's not always your way. You know, it's funny. Um, I don't think this is true for everybody. But for me, it's not your way. If you're, if you're smart, you manage To surround yourself with people that are a lot smarter than you and and then listen. Um, My wife says it, I don't think I do it enough, but we should spend more time listening than talking. And I think that's what I should be doing. Um, I I employ people to make decisions and help me with the process, but undermining them is not success. And so building a collaborative space that's transparent, uh, that's safe, uh, will build on future successes.
0: You know, that collaborative, cooperative approach, particularly with regards to not having to be the smartest person in the room is is very consistent with many of the CEOs we've spoken to.
1: Yeah, clearly, I, I say this often, I am not the smartest guy in the world or in the room, and I don't want to be. I just want to surround myself with people a lot smarter than me. And so that's what's important to me. Is um, And also, I don't want to surround myself with the yes people. I want people to give me their true opinion. I want them to be smart about it, but you, you have to take the good with the bad.
0: How do you decide if it's time to micromanage or, or when to stay out of the sandbox?
1: Yeah, um, great question. I, I would tell you a, a runway. Um, I, I set certain expectations. We, we talk about deliverables. We talk about timelines. We talk about all the things that are, are measurable. And, and you give, my mom used to say that, you give people enough rope to hang themselves, which is, um, until you prove me wrong, I'm going to assume that we're, we're aligned. And so I worked with an old chef that used to say, don't even trust your mother to take stuff out of the oven. You, you always check it yourself. And so the idea is as you delegate and delegation is a big part of our success, um, you better follow through on it. And then if, if in the event things aren't aligned, then, you know, to start peeling it back. Um, but, first, I give everyone the same chance. And, and hopefully, then zoom in when it's not. Right.
0: Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about company culture. What, what are your thoughts on building one?
1: You know, it's funny. I, I think that's sort of like the word control. I don't think there is such a thing. Um, I, I think that the culture, uh, I, I'm in a 50-year-old business. We've been here for 50 years. Um, and I think that The culture of the business is really up to the people that work it and believe in it. Um, We have people that self-opt out because the culture doesn't fit them. Um, I think culture can be a scary thing for a a newcomer. And so how do you make a culture inviting and how do you make it transparent and how do you make it um, successful? Um, I think culture starts from the top down, not from the bottom up. Um, And so for me... So
0: do you see your role as setting the company culture?
1: I do. Listen, I work six days. I interview every team member that goes through here. Um, I try to keep my fingers, you know, uh, on the pulse. Um, but I, I think culture is a dynamic, deep, and wide thing that uh, it, it's got to breathe. And you know, you can put a little sign on the wall that says, "This is our culture," and this is what. But listen, that's just another sign on the wall. Um, and the real culture is to make sure that you're you're being governed by uh, people doing the right thing, not putting a sign up there that says, uh, uh, integrity, you know, we do the right thing. So, um, but it's dynamic and it changes and, and you have to be able to evolve with that
0: change. What would you say is unusual or unique about your culture at Swiss farms? I clean the bathrooms <laughs> back to those janitorial experiences. Yeah. No, right? Well,
1: listen, this is about managing by example. You know, I, I do it because it has to get done. I, I do it because how do I expect my associates that are 17 years old to understand that they're going to go into a store and you have to clean the bathroom? And and this is important. And it's, it's about pride and respect. I, I would tell you that um, for me... Um, influencing a culture in setting up like-minded goals. Um, when we interview people, what we expect of them when they e- before they even show up for a job, we set expectations. And that's about our culture. Um, you know, don't lean, clean. Um, <laughs> uh, take ownership. How do you there's a great book um, and it, I, I'm sure you if you haven't read it, I, I definitely think it's probably one of the best reads and um, it's extreme ownership. And it's by a seal. I don't know. I'm, um, it's called. Uh, it's a U. It's called U.S. Navy SEALs. Lead and win. Extreme ownership. And it's by Jacques Willink. And uh, for us, how do you take extreme ownership? Well, when a customer drives through, listen. Be there for them. Um, if we don't have it, take their phone number. Make them feel you care. Um, And and by the way, is that extreme ownership or is that just caring about what you do? So hiring people that care is really important. We can teach you the skill, but I can't teach you some of these underlying things, which is how you dress for work, Uh, having passion, um, being focused, setting expectation, managing your time, and making sure things are manageable. I mean, measurable, because in our business, everything has to be measurable.
0: We talked a little bit about interviewing like to go a little deeper on that. Scott, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in? Uh,
1: um, listen, uh, I could know you for 50 years or I could know you for five minutes. The end result is a 50-50 crapshoot whether you're going to work <laughs> out or not. Uh, let's talk about basic block and tackle skills. Good eye contact. Are you, are you well-groomed? Um are you chewing gum? are you sitting up straight? Do you know what you're interviewing for you? Have you even I, I've interviewed people from all levels and it's just amazing uh, top or bottom do you know what we do for work here? no have you ever been into our business before? no do you know what our who our competitors are? no basic certain engagement and I think this is the key to it all, which is really engagement are, are, are people, uh, at the end of their chair, looking like they want to be a part of it or are you having to force them to do it? And I talked about this earlier. If you're here because you're forced to be here, I don't want you to be here. But if you're here because you want to be here, then we can work with you. I, I can't I can't teach you your heart. I can't teach you your mind, but I can teach you the skill. And if you have the heart and mind to do it, sky's the limit. And, and this is where it's really about... Um, uh my next book because I'm a geek and I am a complete listener. So I, I read, I, I listen, but I listen to a book a week if I can. But uh think grow uh think and grow rich by Napoleon Hill. So for me this is all about uh passion. This is all about uh going after your dreams and not letting it down. So I want to hire people that think they have value that can that can sh- not just show up on time, but show up with a smile and understand what our priorities are. Um, and that's with any job I have.
0: I think you mentioned that you interview everyone in the company, is that correct? I do, that, wow. I do. And how yeah. many employees do you guys have now? Uh,
1: we have about 200 people. Um, uh, because of the business, we have a high rate of turnover, which is very acceptable within the industry. Um, but um, we we nobody gets by without me interviewing them. And it's not that I'm the hiring decision, it's just at the end of the day, um, I want to make sure the processes are very uh, seamed up. And we have certain expectations when you come to work for here. And you don't get to be on your cell phone. And you have to understand how we make money and, and how you bring value to our company. So if they get through me, they're pretty golden.
0: How do you interview and hire? You know, what's your part of the process?
1: so uh we we actually have a really unique process to hire people. so they go to the store, they interview with the team, ma- team manager, they take a test, and then they are uh they're sent home with a, a group of uh expectations when they come to meet with me. We set up a, a panel interview. I have eight or ten people. I ask them a series of questions and then I allow them to interview me about the job and the company. So, during sorry, this so process, eight, or,
0: eight or ten candidates or eight or ten yep. people on the panel?
1: No, no. We have eight or ten uh, applicants, applicants that w- would come okay. from all different stores. And, and when they show up, they have to show up in the uniform. They have to show up uh, with all this mm-hmm. stuff. And then uh, we ask them a lot of questions, and we see what their engagement is, and then they get to interview me. So it's amazing this process that it's not about me; it's about the company. So if if I'm going around, it's the second round, and someone's going to ask me a question, and they're they're asking the same question as the person before them, I blow them up, and I'm like, "You guys aren't paying attention." This is exactly what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for people that are, aren't listening. So I know within you know, five minutes if this person is really worthy of consideration. And that's really through engagement. Good eye contact. Is this important to them? And, and the worst part is um, they come up with gum. They they have a cell phone. Uh, They don't know better, and so we try to get them in the very beginning to explain what that
0: expectation is. Right now, that's very important. Uh, You know, John Nordstrom, who was the son of the founder of Nordstrom's, was asked once. You know, how do you find these great people? You know, what do you do? What do you train from? And he looked him a little screwy eyed and said, "You know, it's really not what we train to do. It's they were born that way." You know, he looked for certain qualities of people and how they were raised and knew that there was a certain product he could work with in order to form them into that Nordstrom's employee. Is that kind of what you're saying as well? You look for some certain behaviors?
1: There is absolutely a a level of competency that has nothing to do with skill set. It has to do with um, it's the underlying uh, uh, importance of. Um, uh. the soft skills and those soft skills are probably why I'm a little more successful um, than the hard skills, because um, I understand those important
0: things. You can things. read that. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's engagement. It's their presentation. It's their attention to detail. What, what were some of the other things that you think are important as you interview those games? Uh,
1: ownership. Um, uh, I, I'd say being genuine. Listen, we all make boo-boos. Well, you know, Why were you at the job for only three months? Oh, well, the boss was really bad. Okay, well, <laughs> when you come here, if our boss is bad, are you going to quit too? So listen, it's giving people an opportunity to understand what our expectation is and then holding them accountable to it and that we're all aligned in the very beginning.
0: Now, it sounded like you also give them the opportunity to ask you questions. What what were some of the better questions that you've been asked over your years of interviewing folks?
1: You know, I'd I have to say, uh, you know, expectations. I'd have to say, you know, why do people get fired here? Um, um, it's the the low hanging fruit where people get wrapped up into some of this stuff as to um, what success looks like. Um, what you know, what are the things you, you would look for? How did you get to be? How what would you suggest people do if they want to be successful? Um, you know, I I I love sending I like sending people back for a second interview. And so what we've been doing is is if we have a candidate we know has the potential. We'll bring them to the side and we'll sit down and explain to them where they could have done better. And then we ask them to come back a week later to see if they're ready to interview again. And it's amazing how receptive they are with just a little bit of guidance.
0: Wow. That's great. You give them a second chance. Yep. Yeah. Well, Scott Simon, you've been very, very generous with your time. We appreciate that. We've got one last question for you that we ask all our CEOs, and that's, you know, what career and life advice would you give to someone who's got their eyes on the corner office, whether that be, you know, an entrepreneur that's maybe setting up their own business uh, or perhaps a more corporate environment as you found yourself today?
1: Well, I'd say uh, read as much as you can. Um, get a hold of as many autobiographies and, and as many uh, um, books that you can. I would tell you talk to as many people as you can, um, and I would tell you to ask the same question to the same to as many people as you can because it's amazing uh, to get different perspectives. Um, don't don't put a line on the ground and don't don't have a line. Um, when you set up a line for expectations, there's failure involved. So be fluid, be flexible. Um, uh, I think being nimble and, and having uh, agility is, is part of success. Don't be rigid. Um, have an open heart. and And Be ready for setbacks, because I also think it's the failures in life that define our successes, not our successes. We have more failures in life than we do successes. So it's how you handle those failures and those speed bumps of life that determine your success. So when you do have a setback, uh, it's how you handle it that could determine your your true value as as time goes on.
0: Scott, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it.
1: Thank you for your time, sir.